0: But as we turn our hearts to God's uh, word this morning, um, I just want to. Uh, we're entering into a different section here of Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be looking at verse 31 and 32 today. And then uh, we'll be pressing on in this. But uh, you see there, your outline if God is for us, who can be against us? And uh, that's such a glorious truth that um, as we turn our hearts to God's word, I want to read it in its entirety from verses 31 to 39, or at least on this first part of this series, so that we all uh, know exactly um, what, what we're uh, reading as far as context. And so follow along in your Bibles as I read verse 31 to 39 out of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that a wonderful text of Scripture? You know, if you've studied the Bible, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, or you've studied the Bible for any amount of time you know that there's certain texts you come to and and it's kind of like you're at this soaring pinnacle of revelation. You're like on top of the peak of the Himalayas at this point point in in chapter 8. And we come to this wonderful paragraph here at the end of chapter 8 and some commentators have called this the hymn of assurance, a triumph song, the highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation. And, And really... I mean, it's really a mountaintop experience when you go through this time. And so, as we look at this this morning, as we begin to look at this text, it's really the the Everest of this letter that Paul wrote. It's the peak. It's the highest peak. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but there's something about climbing to the top of a mountain. Um, I used to do some rock climbing, and we'd get on top of this peak that we would be climbing, you look down and you just see the valley and you see the beauty of God's creation. And you look up and there's nothing because you're at the highest point. That's kind of where we're at this morning in this scripture. We're able to look over the beautiful lower vistas of the the book's first half, where we've come from. And we can look forward to where we're going to go in the rest of the book. Uh, And yet, for right now, we're kind of right at the the peak of this book. Um, John Stott, uh, basically, in his commentary, he talks about five undeniable affirmations. And those undeniable affirmations we looked at the last couple weeks, the idea that we are, are foreknown, we're predestined, we're called, we're justified, and we're glorified. And this is something that God has done on our behalf through Christ. And now... Uh, He begins... And and John Stott calls this section... Five unanswerable questions. And I thought that's kind of a neat way to put it. Five unanswerable questions. Because he... As you look at this text... You're going to see that there's there's five specific questions... That the Apostle Paul... Kind of puts out there for the, the people that he's writing to. Because he's just covered all this wonderful truth... And he knows what's going on in their heads. And so... You know, you might look at this and say, well, you know, I'm counting seven here. Uh, well, there's two each in verse 31 and 35, and then one each in verses 32, 33, and 34. And that's true. The first question is really not part of that set of questions. And the second question is kind of a reiteration of a, of, of the same question. So really here, when he, he starts in verse 31, when he says, what shall we say to these things? He's really giving us a... Um, kind of a a formula to move on in the text, because we've been in such deep theological truth up to this point, he's kind of making a transition for us. In other words, okay, I just wrote you all this information about being foreknown and and predestined and justified, and eventually you'll be glorified, all these things. And it's kind of like Paul was saying, so what? (laughs) What does that mean to us practically? Where do we go from here? And so, He basically is telling us, in light of what I've been teaching you, what are the conclusions that we should draw from these truths? Or do we just let it go in one ear and out the other? Um, And so that's what he's he's doing here. And there's five main questions here. Uh, John Stott calls them the unanswerable questions. Um, And they concern the things that you might imagine... Could oppose you in your faith. It's concerning things that might come against you in your Christian faith. Things that maybe you might imagine might even be able to defeat you. Or defeat God's plan or harm us in any way. And when he asks these question questions, five of them there, they're really unanswerable because there is nothing that can have this kind of effect. Because it's God that's working on our behalf. And there's none greater than God. John Stott says this way. He says, The apostle hurls these questions out into space, as it were, defiantly, triumphantly, challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them or to deny the truth that is contained in them. But there is no answer, for nobody and nothing can harm the redeemed people of God. I mean, isn't that a glorious truth? The idea that once we're in Christ, we kind of have a little protected bubble around us. Yeah, we feel some pain, we feel some suffering. But in the long run, we know that nothing can affect the outcome of our glorification that God has already accomplished in his mind. And so he... List these five unanswerable questions there. Verse 31, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he says, how can, how will he not also with him give us all things? Verse 33, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn? And then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And so Paul is saying, I've taught you all this information doctrinally, now practically, so what? Where does this go from here? Um, you know, sometimes we, we've been studying Ezra on Wednesday nights. And a couple of weeks ago, we went through a chapter in Ezra, and it's basically just a bunch of names. And I came to that text and I thought, well, I'm committed to teaching through the books of the Bible, but come on, Lord. I mean, you know, and I really struggled to get any truth out of there, really. I mean, I, I think we did. We were able to, but in a roundabout way, but it was just a list of names. And it, and it was, it was kind of, you begin wondering, why would God put that in there? And see, here we see this, sometimes we come to those kind of scriptures and we wonder, why would God put that in scripture? But here, it's, it's very, very important that we ask that question. Paul has taught us all this stuff. So what difference does it make, Paul? And so he raises the question in verse 31 there with reference to these wonderful truths that he, he just unfolded in verses 28 to 30 for us. And we've looked at those over the last couple weeks. And so he says, what shall we say to these things? Some scholars say, well, these things refers all the way back to chapter 6, talking about justified. I think he's just talking about what he just shared, personally. I think he's talking immediately in verses 28 and 30. Um, Because we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's what he just got done teaching us. He also taught us for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that, we would be the first, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so we've seen those truths over the past couple of weeks. And the reason that God can work all these things together for good for God's people, it's not about us. It's because our salvation from first to last is about the Lord. It's from the Lord. It has little to do with us. It originated even before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. By choosing us, he, he chose to set his love on us. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, we've learned. And at a point in our lives, he calls us and he justifies us and eventually we will be glorified. He will bring our salvation to completion when we share his glory at his second coming. And this entire process is a process that is so secure. It's secure because it it isn't about us, but it's about Christ. It's about Christ being lifted up by about Christ being firstborn, having preeminence among many brethren, he says. This is his own son. See, if God's purpose is to glorify His Son, and that is secure. You know God is going to do that. Then our salvation will be secure because our salvation is in His Son. So Paul then forces, focuses here on these these wonderful truths, and he asks the question, what shall we say to these things? His answer basically is, hey, if God is for us, um, because He gave His Son on the cross to die for us, how do we apply these truths to our, li- to our lives? So he repeats these questions. Who is against us? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one that condemns? What can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? And so he's applying all these truths to us practically. Um, and sometimes in the Christian life you're going to face, if you haven't yet, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face opposition for what you stand for in Christ. And when that happens, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, I think in here in America, we know very little about opposition to the gospel. We, we just, you know, I mean, who here's had their house burned down because they're a Christian? You know, who here's been beat up at work because they're a Christian? Who here is, you know, I mean, we can go through the list of things, right? And, and probably nobody because we live in a free country but when you go to certain parts of the world beloved as sam even referenced in the missions update you can't just freely practice your christian faith they'll cut your head off just as soon look at you and so sometimes we think because we've been discriminated against or nobody talked to us at the water cooler at work because we're a christian you know i mean we think oh yeah i'm bearing my cross you know that's nothing That's nothing in comparison to what people are going through around the world. But you know what? If we are attacked, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus predicted that his message would cause families to be divided, not unified. He said that they would be divided one against another. They would even betray one another to death. Matthew 10, verses 21, 24, 34 to 38. And so we need to be prepared to endure opposition... So that we can stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is to persevere in faith, we need to focus on God's great love as is seen in the gift of his own son. And now when we look at these verses, some people misapply verse 32. They look at that and they say, oh, he's graciously given us all things. That includes a new car. That's claim it by faith. You can get a new house out of this deal. This is a pretty good deal. No, that's not what he's talking to. He's not talking about that at all. As a matter of fact, in verse 35, he kind of brings it back to reality. He says, do you want to endure faithfully? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword for Jesus' sake. In other words, he's saying, hey, this is what you should expect in a world, in a fallen world, if you're going to stand up for Christ. All those things. And see, we have to be reminded sometimes that God, who loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for you and I and for our sins. And he'll give us the grace, he'll give us the strength that we need to bear up under every trial for the sake of the gospel. He's going to be there with us. He's not going to allow us to falter or fail. He will safely bring us to glory one day. And so he applies these three truths in this way. In the first point there in the outline, the truth of God's sovereignty in saving us demands a response of worship and total submission. The truth of God's sovereignty in saving us demands a response of worship and total submission. In verse 31, he says, What shall we say to these things? I mean, I, I get the idea that Paul was kind of stunned by these amazing truths that God just gave him here in verses 28 to 30. I mean, when you stop and you think about those things, it's the idea that God would choose you before you were ever even born. That he called us out of darkness into this marvelous light, as 1 Peter 2.9 says. That he justified us apart from any works of our own and that our future glorification with him, he uses the past tense there, so it's kind of like a done deal. He doesn't say you will be glorified. He says, no, you're glorified. It's already done. So Paul's saying, what shall we say to these things? I mean, some people, they don't like to hear messages on predestination or election. They say, well, that's controversial. That's a doctrine that doesn't really relate to my life. You know... How is that going to advance my career? (laughs) Um, And they just shrug it off. I think if that's the attitude you're taking, there's something seriously wrong in your heart before God. Because this is something that our response to these truths should be one of Isaac Watts when he wrote the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He wrote, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's where we should go when we are confronted with these incredible doctrinal truths. Because the truth of God's sovereignty in saving us demands a response of worship and total submission. Secondly, the truth that God is for us in the gospel means that we must evaluate all opposition. We must evaluate the difficulties in light of God's grace. You know, we're going to have opposition. We're going to have difficulties. They're going to come. And so he says there in verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? He asked this question. I mean, when you look at that question taken by itself, the second half of that question is not at all unanswerable. I mean, you can definitely answer that. Who could be against us? You know, I mean, the idea that... What do you mean, who is against us? There's many people against us. You know, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you realize that. And not only can they be against us, they are against us. Um, The Bible tells us that the three great enemies of the Christian life are the world, the flesh... And the devil and Satan, right? The world is against this because Christianity is an offense to it. The world doesn't appreciate being told they're a sinner and they need a savior. They think they are the savior. It's opposed to it because they're, they're rebellious against God's ways. To the point where they actually invent ways to do new evil in the eyes of God. We went through that when we went through the early part of Romans. So you have the world that's definitely against us. Um, The world will try to get us as believers, as a church, to conform to it. To to become like the world. Failing that, it will try to do us in. It's not going to just sit back and let you live your nice little Christian life without opposing you. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, well, gee, I, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've, I've never had any opposition from the world concerning my faith, then you better look at your faith. Because if you're doing what Christ tells you you should be doing out in a sinful world and you're proclaiming the gospel and you're living a righteous life and you're not conforming to the world, you're going to stand out. And people don't like people that stand out. Secondly, our flesh is also an enemy. This, this body that we still have. Because it contains the seeds of sin within it. We're unable to escape the influence of this life. That's why Paul says, man, you know, I I just... The thing I want to do, I can't do. And the thing I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And we all have that struggle each and every day in our Christian life. So we have the world against us. We have the flesh against us. And if that weren't enough, we have a powerful enemy, Satan. And he is powerful. I know God is more powerful, but Satan is powerful. And he's actually even described by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, this isn't a lion who's already been fed, and and he's not going to harm you. No, this is a lion that's looking for some lunch or some dinner. He wants something to eat. And guess what? He's looking at you. I mean, there are plenty of enemies out there who are against us. Those are three. There's even the enemy within our own flesh. But what are we to do about these things? Because when you go to the first half of that verse, it says what? If God is for us. If God is for us. I'm sure you recognize that that word if, and I've I've taught this before... It does not imply doubt. See, sometimes we use the word in our English la- language and we say, well, if I'm going to lunch afterwards, you're invited. Well, you would say, well, are you going or not, right? I mean, okay, what, do you just hang around and wait for you to, to, to get in the car? What's going to happen? Um, you know, it implies doubt. But in the original language, it doesn't. It, it actually speaks very factually. It has the idea of sense. That's really what he's saying here. Um, and so when you look at these, these, these verse, what shall we say to these things, since God is for us? It's the same thing in 1 John 1.9. Right? Talking to a believer. 1 John 1.9 says what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay. So we make that kind of conditional. We say, well, we don't have to. No. It really says, since you confess your sins. Why wouldn't you confess your sin? It's not like God's going to come down with a big club and hammer you. Your sins are already paid for. Right? I mean, that, that's so, so important to understand. And so he says here, since God is for us, that makes a big difference. See, it's as if Paul is challenging us to place all the possible enemies that we can think of on one half of an old-fashioned balance scales. You ever see those old-fashioned balance scales? You know, they have little trays on each side and you put your stuff on the side and then you try to balance it out and see how much it weighs. It would be kind of like on one side, you're you're, you're putting empty peanut shells and then on the other side, you drop a, you know, 40-pound weight. What's going to happen? I mean, it's going to be an overwhelming difference. This is what Paul is doing. If God is for us, who can be against us? who can stand against God? Do you ever think about that? Who is able to stand against God? The answer is nobody. Nobody. No one can defeat us if the almighty God of the universe is on our side. I don't know about you, but I don't like to lose. I just don't like to lose. I don't, you know, if it's playing a game, you know, my life, my wife likes to play board games and I don't, you know... I like to play them sometimes. I'm always losing to her. And it just irritates me. Okay? I don't like it. She loves it, you know? I mean, maybe if she'd let me win once in a while, I'd play a little more often. I don't know. But I'm just saying nobody likes that, right? I, I mean, think if you had to live your Christian life not knowing that you were on the winning side. That if it was left up to you somehow to secure your own salvation in the end. That somehow... You would be afraid that someone could come against the God that saved you and and overwhelmingly defeat him. And therefore, cancel out your salvation. And see, Paul is not denying that there is opposition. He's not denying that there's uh, uh, things against us. Because in verse 35, he mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. We're going to look at those in a couple weeks. And even in verse 80, or 36 there, he, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake, we are being put to death all the day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And even over in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, he mentions that we are wrestling against powerful spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. So he doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have any opponents, and boy, we just skate, you know, on this Christian thing. We, we come to Christ, and then we just skate the rest of our life. Um, no, but rather that anyone who comes against us, we could be assured that we, when we are standing for the truth of the gospel, they are actually going against God, not you. When you go out and you Share the gospel with someone and they mock you or whatever. They're not mocking you, they're mocking God. And God will take care of it in due time. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, it even says that they may succeed in taking our lives. (laughs) We may actually die for the cause of the gospel. But you know what? God will glorify us and judge those who are against us, who do not repent. How do we really know that God is for us? how do we know this? How, how can we be sure of this? I mean, there's a lot of atrocities that happen in history because the, the perpetrator of those atrocities thought that God was on their side. You can talk to members of ISIS terrorist group today and they'll say, oh no, we, we're serving the true God. And God is telling us to do this. And they, and trust me, they believe it. I mean, they believe it so much they're willing to die for their cause. They'll blow themselves up thinking that somehow they're pleasing their God. Eric Metaxas in his his, uh, book on Bonhoeffer, he wrote how It was so incredible back in that time that Adolf Hitler interpreted the Japanese slaughter of Americans at Pearl Harbor as a sign that God would be on his side if he went ahead and exterminated all these Jews. He really believed that. See, on the other side of things, think of it biblically. Jacob thought that the difficult circumstances in his life were all against him. But it was really far from the truth. He needed to know that exactly what Joseph knew was true, that although Jacob's other sons meant these things for evil, God meant them for what? For good. And here are kind of just three little steps to help you understand and evaluate sometimes when opposition comes against you, when, when critics rise up against you. First of all, make sure that God is for you. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of an important first step, right? Because, you know, there's no gray area here. Either God is for you or He is against you. You can't have one big toe in and one big toe out. It doesn't work that way. He isn't neutral on this issue. And if God is against you, then who can be for you? See, uh, God is the worst conceivable enemy that you would ever want to have in the entire universe. I mean, I remember someone telling a story one time, uh, growing up in their, their home. They were saying that, you know, if there was one person you did not want get, to get angry at you, it was mama. And they went in through this whole thing. And they thought, because when mama got mad, man, it was, you know, the raptor shook and we all paid a price. See, if you're not in Christ here this morning, I need you to hear this because you need to understand the plight in which you find yourself. You're You're under God's righteous judgment. You're under God's righteous wrath. You're headed for eternal judgment and torment. So you want to make sure that your hope for escaping God's judgment does not lie in your own good works. It's not built upon what you do. It's built upon rather upon what was done on your behalf on Christ, on Calvary. Make sure that you're standing on the right side of the gospel. You're standing with Christ. Secondly, we need to examine our hearts and we need to ask God whether God could be using this opponent or this critic to get you to deal with some blind spot, some shortcoming or some sin. You know, sometimes you get criticized about things and sometimes it's even unfair criticism. We all have dealt with that. And a lot of times we, we consider the source and say, oh, well, it doesn't mean anything. I think we need to go a step further and we need to really take that criticism before God and say, God, maybe even though they're not coming from a right place in their heart, they're really angry, they're whatever, maybe there's something you want me to see out of this person. Maybe you want me to hear something. Even though I know in my own heart, I'm not doing anything wrong, but I, I, I don't want to just discount it. I want to be able to, to listen prayerfully to what they're saying. And ask you if there's something maybe I need to address in my own life. Because even if the opponent or the critic's motivation is from a selfishness or from sin, God may still be using them to get your attention in some area of your life. Even if their attitude is wrong. Sometimes we need to listen to their criticism in spite of that. Thirdly, after you have honestly taken the first two steps... Don't take the attacks against you personally. This is so key. See, if you're catching flack because you're standing for the truth, first make sure that you're doing it, and you're doing so with gentleness, with graciousness, with love, with humility. See, if to the best of your ability you are doing those things, then your critic is probably opposing God and his word of truth, not even you. You're simply the messenger. You know, that's, it, that's so key. You know, does it hurt when people attack you or say things? Definitely. But if you can somehow remove the, the personal part of it and say, you know what, God, I, I know in my heart, I, I'm not doing anything wrong here, but, you know, I, I'm not sure of this. So I, I'm just going to kind of go on. I'm going to press on with this, this person in the relationship. Pray that God will use your graciousness, your loving response to being the critic to repentance and faith. Before we leave verse 31, make sure that you apply the truth that God is for you to yourself. Especially, listen, especially in times of failure, discouragement or sin. Because those are the times when the enemy steps into the picture and makes you feel like nothing. Because you know what? We all fail. We all get discouraged. We all sin, probably in a myriad of ways. And if we're allowing that door to be open for the enemy to come in and just beat us more when we're down... What's the outcome of that? The outcome of that is, well, you don't even feel worthy to come to church anymore. You don't feel worthy to serve. You don't even feel worthy to read the Bible because you feel it's just going to condemn you more. You need to stop that, wake up, and say, wait a minute, who am I in Christ? You know, I'm a child of the Most High God. It's not up to me. Jesus Christ has paid for my sins. I have a right standing before God. I am considered holy in his sight, not because of who I am, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf. And yeah, you know what? I did blow it. But that's why the Bible says I need to go and confess and just tell God, you know what? Yeah, I blew it. I'm saying the same thing. That's what the word confession means, saying the same thing. You're not making excuses. You're not trying to dance around the sin. You're just saying, yeah, you know what? Your word says this was wrong, God, and I admit it. I did it. That's it. Thank you for your forgiveness. Let's move on. And if you have to make any reconciliation, you make the reconciliation. But don't you, as a child of God, allow for one second Satan to put his heel on your head and hold you down under the water of sin or or discouragement. Because that's not where the child of God belongs. Pray that God will use your gracious, loving response to your critics to lead them to repentance and to faith. I know that that sometimes people correlate our heavenly father with the earthly father. And maybe you grew up in a messed up home. Maybe you're afraid somehow that God is going to get you because you did something wrong. See, if you're forgiven in Christ, that's just exactly your state. You are forgiven. You need to know that God never does anything that is against you as his child. Ever. He will discipline you, but he does so out of love. He'll even do it severely if if you don't wake up and you don't hear it and he's got to get your attention. But it's always out of love so that you might share in his holiness. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, right? Hebrews chapter 12. Let me just read those verses, verses 5 to 12. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation of, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We've all heard that. This hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. Yeah, right. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift, look at what it says, your droopy hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is Lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and it goes on there. See, God never acts in any way to tear you down or to reject you, He always acts in love. He always acts for your good, even when He's correcting you. He's doing it out of a heart of love. So, the first truth is that God's sovereignty in saving us demands a response of worship and submission. The second truth is that God is for us in the gospel, and it means that we have to evaluate all opposition and all difficulties in life in light of his love and his grace. The third truth this morning I want to leave you with is the truth, and it kind of prepares our heart for our communion table, the truth that God has done the greatest thing for us in the sacrifice of his son. And it means that he will supply us with all that is needed for life and godliness. Look at what he says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him, Christ, over for us all. How will he, not God, not also with him, Christ, freely give us all things? See, Paul's logic is simple, but it's it's complete. He's saying basically God did the greatest thing imaginable when he gave his own son to die on this cross. So don't you think that he will graciously give you the lesser things that you need? See, he's not putting us on a cross. He already did that with his son. So can't we conclude that Well, if God already gave all that, at least he's going to see us through. He's going to provide for this. This is not the prosperity gospel where God promises to fulfill your your, your greed or your lusts. He's not saying that at all. Verse 36 indicates that we may even be slaughtered if we follow Christ. Rather, verse 32 promises that God will give you the grace that you need to endure opposition and persecution and and persevere in your faith when you stand for the gospel. You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, Peter writes this, that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given us everything. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, those things you buy on TV and, and you get it and you're opening up and then it's like, well, you know, here for, I should have bought the extra stuff because it didn't come in the box, you know, and and you, you realize that after you, 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 you go through that once or twice. See, God doesn't save us and then say, okay, I'm giving you, you know, Half a box here, hopefully that lasts. No, he's given us a full container, a full supply of whatever we need to complete this Christian life. And he knows exactly what we need because he's the one that created us. John Flavo, a Puritan, wrote this, Surely if he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should after this deny or withhold from his people, for whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privileges, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. See, Paul is challenging us to look at the cross and reason if God did that for us. He sent his own son to die in our place. Is there anything that he can possibly be withholding from us after he already gave us all that? I mean, stop and think. Sometimes, well, you know, I, 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 just, I need strength to overcome temptation. You know, I can't resist the temptation to sin. Will God give you the strength to overcome sensation, temptation? Definitely. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? No temptation has seized you except that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's already given you the strength. You just need to access it. You just need to put it to use. Sometimes we feel lonely in life. We need that friend to stick through this life in the dark places so we don't despair and lose hope. Will God be a friend to us? Of course he will. John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you what? Friends. He is a friend to us. And even in verse chapter 28, verse 20, he says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm never going to leave you. I'm not the kind of friend that's there in the good times, and then when the money and partying runs out, then I'm gone. No, Jesus is there through thick and thin. Sometimes we need direction in our lives. Sometimes we need to know more specifically how to live and and how to please God in our lives. Will God provide that direction? Definitely. Psalm 32 verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Psalm 32 verse 8. He will give us instruction. Do we need comfort? Definitely. Sometimes we go through life, things happen in life. We lose loved ones. You know, that bad things happen sometimes. We need that that comfort. I, I'm here to tell you this morning that God is the only sure source of comfort. God will be with us in death's dark hour. He will sustain us. He will bring us joyfully into his glorious presence at the end. The Bible says in Psalm 116, verse 15, Precious is the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So somehow we need to be reminded of those things, that these needs that we have are not being overlooked. And if you don't believe that, uh, Philippians chapter four, verse 19, Paul kind of sums everything up and he says, my God will meet what? All your needs, not according to you, but according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So, Clearly, God gave us Jesus, the greatest of all possible gifts. He can be counted to give us the gifts that we need to deal with our faith on an individual basis each and every day. John Stott says this, The cross proves God's generosity. The cross proves God's generosity. First point there under there is God has done the greatest thing imaginable. For us, by sacrificing his own son. You know that word there when it says spared? It's used in the, the Septuagint when, when God tells Abraham, which is a, a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, when God tells Abraham that I know that you fear God since you have not withheld or spared your son, your only son from me. See, with Abraham, God intervened at the last moment and provided that ram, remember? In the thicket for the sacrifice. So Isaac, his son, was spared. But you know what? That drama played out as a very close uh, earthly picture of what the father went through in sending his son to bear the cross and go through the horrors of that week and deal with everything he had to deal with Four things here in closing with about Christ's death. Christ's death was not ultimately a humanly caused tragedy. But a divinely ordained solution to our sin and guilt. You know, God delivered over his own son for us. See, there's a sense in which Judas delivered up Jesus to die. Also, the Jewish leaders, it says, delivered up Jesus to Pilate. And the people of Jerusalem also delivered up Jesus to the authorities. Pilate delivered up Jesus to death. But Paul also said, back in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered over because, why? Of our transgressions. So we delivered him up to death. We're all part of this. Paul says in Galatians 2:20 that Jesus gave himself up for me. It's the same word as Jesus said he laid down his life not or on his own initiative no one took it from him. And behind all these causes it was the Father. The heavenly Father who delivered over his son for us all. In Isaiah 53 verse 4 Isaiah predicted in that great prophecy when he said that Christ would be smitten of God. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief. Or as Peter puts it in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. See, it was God's eternal purpose to glorify himself by sending his son to the cross for our sins. And the cross glorifies God's absolute righteous justice in that he demanded the penalty be paid for our sin in full. And Christ was the only one able to do that. Secondly, Christ's death was substitutionary. It says that he gave Jesus for us all. What's that mean? It means that he died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserved. And he put it upon himself. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that God made Christ to be sin on our behalf. Some, someone who was perfectly pure. He never committed any sin whatsoever. And yet he took all of our sins upon himself. And because Jesus paid that penalty, we can justly be declared righteous at his expense. So it's a substitutionary death. Thirdly, Christ's death was particular. It was personal and it was effectual. What do I mean by that? It says there, God delivered him over for us all. Well, who is the all there? The all is those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. It is those whom God is for, in verse 31. It is God's elect, those whom he will justify, in verse 33. It is those for whom Christ is now interceding, verse 34. Note that all whom God foreknew, he predestined. All he predestined, he called. All he called, he justified. All he justified, he glorified. No one falls through the cracks, beloved. Christ did not die in hope that maybe somehow some would decide to respond to his offer and be saved. God is not in heaven wringing his hands in desperation saying, man, I've done everything I can do. The rest is up to them. Please, somebody respond to my invitation. No, Christ died effectually to save all whom the Father predestined to save. He died so that all that the Father has given me, John 6:39, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Or as Jesus prayed just prior to the cross in John 17, Father, the hour has come glorify your son that the son of the son may glorify you, even as you have give him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And a few verses later, in verse 9, 17, he says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but, on, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. See, Jesus, the Bible says, lay down his life for his sheep. Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her. It's a particular death. Fourthly, and we'll close with this, Christ's death was supreme demonstration of God's love and grace for sinners. A lot of modern translations leave out one small Greek particle there in verse 32. Who did not spare even his own son. His own son emphasizes that Jesus is uniquely the son of God in a way that we are not. And we never can be. We are God's adopted sons by new birth, but Jesus is the eternal Son of God. See, the Father and the Son, you have to be reminded of this, enjoyed unbroken love in all the Trinity, in all of eternity. And so the Father, to send even his own Son, he did not spare it. That's an incredible sacrifice. And God will graciously supply us with all that is needed for life and godliness. Do you see Paul's logic here? He's, he's kind of saying this. If God did this unimaginably greatest possible thing for us by not sparing his own son, but allowing him to be crucified, then won't he do that which is far less demanding? It doesn't mean that he's going to give you a mansion, a fancy new car, a full bank account, successful career. He's talking about dealing with Opposition. For the sake of the gospel. Paul means that when you face opposition or hardship for the sake of the gospel through Christ. God will give you all that you need to overwhelmingly conquer it. As we come to this table this morning. I think we need to be reminded of what this is about. We do this every month. And sometimes it can become trite. It can become superficial. It's just okay take the cracker and go through it. We need to be reminded of what Christ told us to do, instructed us to do. He said, until I return, I want you to remember my sacrifice. And here's how I want you to remember it. Through this ordinance in the local church, by by gathering together with other believers and and singing a song and, and taking of these elements. And when we do, we need to be reminded of his sacrifice for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray even now that as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, Lord, that you would um, just do the work that you desire to do. Lord, if there's any here who have yet to come to a proper understanding of their salvation in you, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, that they would acknowledge their, their, their sin before you, a holy God, that they would acknowledge that Jesus is the only Savior that can save, that their faith and their trust would be opened up. They would put that in you. They'd place that that faith that you've given them in you. And Lord, that you would even here in this place this morning, uh, transform them, save them as only you can. Father, for us believers, the Bible says that this is a time of examination, that we should examine our own hearts, that we shouldn't just come to this table in a uh, careless way. But Father, this is a time that we can examine our own hearts. And and if there's things we need to confess to you, I pray that we would do that even now in the quietness of this moment. But Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. And we pray that this time of our service would also be exalting to you, be a blessing to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.